Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.
Welcome, everybody. A special welcome to our live stream guests. Welcome to this sunny Sunday in winter with the heat on, which I hope you can feel the difference from last week. <laughs> Today's service, we're going to be looking at religious experience, and part of the lesson there is that everything in life can be a portal for our own enlightenment, and that includes the body. And so I thought we would start worship today doing a body prayer that some of us have done before. I will say that I always give permission to people. I used to greatly resist people asking me to do things physical. Um, so if you are a great resistor, you can sit quietly and find your own bodily entry into worship. And if you're willing to join in an experiment, please do so. Um, and with whatever limits your body has. So knowing your own body, you can do this seated, but I, if you're able to stand, I would invite you to stand and maybe create a little space between you and your neighbors so we don't put out any eyes this morning. Um, you'll need to stretch your arms. and So stand with your feet firmly in the ground in a strong stance that feels comfortable. We'll start in the posture with our hands folded in what's often a kind of namaste, the sacred in me greets the sacred in you posture. And we'll begin, if you recall, forcing our hands upward and our eyes with them to the rafters, to the sky and the stars beyond, sense of awe and expansiveness. Open our arms, maybe to the fullness of this day and all it offers. Hold your arms here and feel as they get heavy with all that this single day has to offer. Turn your hands and sweep them through the pearls that are dropped at our feet today, trying to gather in which gifts you will take with you into this day. And then the ones you have managed to hold on to, press them into you and then offer yourself as you are the gift that you are. Put our hands back in the posture of centering and then repeat. Up in awe, open to the fullness of this day, of this hour, sweeping our hands through the many blessings that are ours to take couple with us, press them into us till they become part of us and then offer ourselves as we are to the world. Back to namaste and then let's do it twice through in silence. blessings and good morning. But don't sit down, because we're going to sing our first hymn of the morning. Now you can use your voice as a portal and an opening to 
invitation to the world. Let your spirit be as open as your vocal cords as we sing, Be Thou My Vision. Hymn number 20 in your gray hymnal. Please join me in saying the words of our unison chalice lighting. The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Thank you very much. I made this announcement once before in late December, and you all were not here that day, so it's sort of a repeat. Um, what really gets me excited about being a part of this congregation is the fact that we are here in covenant. And for all of those of you who were little in the Sunday school, you know that a covenant, a covenant is a promise. It's a promise that we've agreed to make with each other. It's usually talked about with God. I'm not such a big thing on God. It's a promise that we're making with each other. Part of that promise that we have made with each other is something called the budget. The budget has this little line item saying that we're gonna raise some money in something called the auction. The auction's coming February 1st. You know what we need? We need two things, among all, 
uh, for the auction. One, we need all of you to go out and buy a ticket and come to the auction, particularly those of you under 40. There aren't too many of you, but I see you out there. You know, we could have a few more of you at the auction. The second thing we need is a few more donations. The donations we really, really need, no, not Aunt Betty's piece of art that she left to you 25 years ago. That's not what we need. What we need is you, okay? And let me explain that for a second. What we need is for you to throw a party. Some of you are really good cooks and have volunteered dinners. I have a secret for you. Thank you very much if you're a really good cook, but even if you're not a really good cook, you can throw a party. Order some pizzas and play Scrabble. It's easy, but those are the kinds of things we need for the auction. Please consider doing it. Um, the auction table is right out front in the, in the breezeway, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the auction and at the table afterwards. Thank you so, so much. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. I think we started higher, so I heard some of the low people willing to come in, but the high was a challenge. Let's remain standing for our covenant and doxology. The words are printed in your order of service of the commitments we say, the promises to one another, which are that love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
Good morning. My name is Linda Harris, and I'm our congregation's local representative for the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, or UUSC. I am grateful beyond measure for our weekly opportunity to gather together in this religious community to experience the warmth of love and the fire of commitment, to contemplate what it means when we covenant together that love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. I am similarly grateful for the opportunity that the UUSC offers to join with other UUs in living out these commitments and values in the wider world. Just like our UU community in San Francisco binds our community to living out our values in ritual, rituals, both old and new, so does the UUSC. Thousands of UUs keep guest at your table boxes on their tables and other family gathering spots from Thanksgiving through the new year and feed them with donations for the work of the service committee and to support um, their values. I urge you to read the brochure included in your order of service to find out more about this program and about the human rights and social justice work of the UUSC since its inception in response to the needs of refugees escaping Nazi persecution. Today, during the offertory, we will be collecting these guests at your table boxes and in, engaging in our annual ritual of renewal of personal and financial commitment to the work of the UUSC. If you have forgotten to bring your box, have been kind enough to count and write a check for the total donations in your box, or not been using a box, but would like to take this opportunity to support the work of the UUSC, you are in luck. You may use the envelope enclosed in the order of service for your contribution. Please remember that the UUSC exists only because of the donations and support of individuals like you, and give generously. Donations of $125 or more will be matched dollar for dollar by the UU congregation at Shelter Rock. Boxes also may be returned to the UUSC table after the service any Sunday in the remainder of January. I also invite you to join us after the service today at a luncheon recognizing human rights work of both the UUSC and our congregation. We are especially excited to have Hope Fry as our featured speaker. Ms. Fry has been a human rights attorney who has been active in immigration work for over 40 years, including with the Flores decision. She's one of the few people whom the court has ordered ICE to allow to interview children in the immigration detention. Her work to amplify the words of these children has both informed and inspired our congregation's work with immigration justice. At a time when the politics of hatred and division assault us with every news cycle, it is especially important to take advantage of the opportunity that the UUSC offers us to join with thousands of other UUs to live out our values, stand up for justice and love, stand against hatred and fear, I thank you from the bottom of my heart 
for your support of this work. Thank you, Linda. And as part of our commitment to this work of serving justice, we will engage in a practice that we have been part of and has been part of our worship since late July, our time of remembrance and commitment. Recognizing that there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we will ring our gong this morning in honor of two such places of suffering and a reminder of the obligation to know what is being done in our name as a nation and to stand up and witness to suffering. We ring our gong in honor of those children first who have lost their lives in federal custody at detention camps. So we will ring it seven times for those seven children who have died so far. But let the ringing symbolically stand too for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, the additional 1,500 children separated from their families, and the 70,000 adults and 11,000 children who are being held in deplorable conditions. This week, we will also ring our gong once in honor of the 176 people who died in the crash of the Ukrainian jetliner that was shot down near Tehran. May we keep all of these people in our thoughts and prayers and their loved ones too. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. In the stillness of the aftermath Some of us were heard to say Nothing's ever gonna change It's just the way things go Makes you wanna give up trying Makes you shake your head and cry yeah, we've seen it all before And we know what we know But you, too young to know it can't be done 
You can do it now for everyone. Rise up, rise up, rise up. This is your world and this is your time. Rise up, rise up, rise up. Yeah, you'll be lifting as you climb. Rise up, rise up, rise up. When again we stand in darkness, in the outrage of the hour, Asking why and why and why Looking left and looking right We'll remember that we raised you And we'll see your hearts on fire Not giving up, not giving in And we'll follow your light say impossible you make it possible again and again rise up rise up rise up this is your world and this is your time rise up rise up rise up yeah you'll be lifting as you climb rise up Rise up, rise up. I invite us now into a time of prayer and meditation. O source of all certainty and doubt, of power and pain, of order and entropy. O oh, voice in the back of our heads that gives us a word when we need it most, or that stays silent when we need it most. We gather today still in the wake of a new year hopeful for new beginnings, new love, new friends, new light, new hobbies. We gather for the warmth of a community that we might share our loads with one another, that we might hear something we need that we might do something important, even if it's important only shines through to one person. We gather knowing that each of us has chosen to be here together. As we go through our weeks, let us be open, open to the people around us, open to new experiences, whether they be holy or mundane, 
open even to the things that are painful and unwanted, and let us learn from that. Let us do something hard and unexpected. Let us do something impossible. Let us hold true to what we believe in, to the person that we want to be, to the person we know we could be. And let us forgive ourselves our imperfections and cherish them for the teachers they are. And as we struggle in our own personal journeys, let us struggle not alone, but together. And now, let us open our hearts to one another in a silence that we make sacred by holding it together. Blessed be. Three days after my ninth birthday, my mom collapsed in the backyard. My dad did CPR and told my sister to call 911. I could hear her swearing under her breath. We lived in a rural area, and my mom was the only doctor nearby, so it took a long time for the ambulance to get to our house and back to the hospital. I thought everything would be okay. A few days later, I was marched into the doctor's office and calmly asked what her chances were. I was told she didn't have any. I cried. My understanding of the world broke. That's what a religious experience is, right? That's what religion's for, to help us try to put the pieces back together when the world breaks. It's probably the only time in my life 
that I turned to religion looking for answers. I think that was the first time I sat in on a full Jewish service. We said the prayers, but they didn't really mean anything to me. When I asked people there about her death, they gave me answers like, she's in a better place. But Judaism doesn't really believe in heaven or hell, and it seemed like they didn't really even believe what they were saying when I was looking in their eyes. Why do bad things happen to good people? The book of Job asks. My mom was a doctor, she helped people. And she was my mother and I needed her. I think that somebody said God had a plan, needed her somewhere else. I never read the book of Job until college. And when I did, I was surprised to learn that in that story, bad things happen to good people because God was trying to win a bet. I wanted to see her again, talk to her. I remember someone said that if I meditated, I might be able to see her, but I don't think I really ever tried it. To this day, I haven't ever really meditated, even though now we basically call any moment of silence meditation. My sister is Japanese, and there's a Japanese legend that if you fold a thousand origami cranes, the gods will grant you a wish. I asked my sister if we were going to wish for our mom back. She said no. I'm not sure if we ever did make it to a thousand. We tried a grief group once for kids who had a parent die. They gave us colored pencils and had us draw our emotions. I guess it might have helped some people. So my world broke. I got advice from four religions and from the secular community, but none of them really believed what they were saying. None of it helped. I think the only useful advice I got was that I could focus on my schoolwork, but most people seem to want to take that away from me, let me stay home from school, give me some unwanted time to mourn. No one told me that sometimes the world sucks and there's nothing we can do about it, and so it goes. No one was callous enough to tell me the truth that time would heal all wounds, even this one. When I was searching for truth and meaning, no one told me that there wasn't a ready-made answer for me, that I'd have to figure it out for myself, and that it would be hard work, but also good work. No one told me that we're part of an interconnected web of existence and that that is still true, even when a part of that web is ungraciously cut. No one told me that we each can bring our sparks of joy and life and dignity into the world and help those around us and fight the suffering and that my mom did that in her life and that when I figured out my purpose, I would too. To paraphrase Kurt Vonnegut, no one told me that there's nothing intelligent to say about death, that everything's supposed to be quiet, and it always is, except for the birds. And the birds say all there is to say about death, things like So in the spirit of helping those who suffer in times and places where there is no easy answer, but 
there is at least someone who reaches out. And companionship and allyship our offering will be given for the work of the USC and their grassroots partnerships in places of injustice and suffering around the world. change the world dismisses as confused or small or strange but they're true to their vision and they're true to humanity and they see a more perfect union and their truth sets all of us free you can't unring that bell you can't unring that bell once you've rung that bell of freedom, can't unring, ring that bell. The reins of power are so often held by those whose idea of freedom is to silence those they oppose. But freedom keeps on ringing. It echoes in the hearts of all people down the generations and it's ringing here now. You can't unring that bell. You can't unring that bell. Once you've rung that bell of freedom, can't unring, ring that bell. Well, you can lose some battles lose some ground but you'll never unhear that sound of freedom I want to tell you there's no place I'd rather be than with you people on the right side of history so let truth lead to wisdom and let wisdom lead to tolerance and let tolerance lead to justice and let justice lead to peace you can't unring that bell you can't unring that bell once you've rung that bell of freedom can't unring you can't unring that bell can't unring that bell once you've rung that bell of freedom, can't unring, ring that bell. Our mystery reading for the morning is from Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love. The passage is taken from the middle part of the book the pray part, the time in, is that right? Eat, pray, love. Well, it's taken from her time in India, where she goes to an ashram as she struggles in her search and desire for spiritual connection. The reading is set when after weeks of meditation, 
to no great end or achievement, she almost accidentally falls into meditation one day when she's actually supposed to be watching over this room of new guests at the ashram as they meditate in case they need her help. And she has this transcendent experience. She writes the following. <clears throat> as a reader and a seeker, I always get frustrated at this moment in somebody else's spiritual memoir, that moment in which the soul excuses itself from time and place and merges with the infinite. From the Buddha to Saint Teresa to the Sufi mystics to my own guru, so many great souls over the centuries have tried to express in so many words what it feels like to become one with the divine. But I'm never quite satisfied with these descriptions. Often you will see maddening adjectives like indescribable to describe the event. But even the most eloquent reporters of the devotional experience, like Rumi, who wrote about having abandoned all efforts and tied himself to God's sleeve. Even these poets leave me behind. I don't want to read about it. I want to feel it, too. Sri Ramana Maharishi, a beloved Indian guru, used to give long talks on the transcendental experience to his pupils, and then he'd always wrap it up with the instruction, now, go find out. So now I've found out. And I don't want to say what I experienced that Thursday afternoon in India was indescribable, even though it was. I'll try to explain it anyway. Simply put, I got pulled through the wormhole of the absolute, and in that rush, I suddenly understood the workings of the universe completely. I, I left my body, I left the room, I left the planet. I stepped through time and I entered the void. I was inside the void, but I also was the void, and I was looking at the void all at the same time. The void was a place of limitless peace and wisdom. The void was conscious, and it was intelligent. The void was God, which means I was inside God, but not in a gross, physical way. Not like I was Liz Gilbert stuck inside a chunk of God's thigh muscle. I was part of God, in addition to being God. It wasn't hallucinogenic, what I was feeling. It was the most basic of events. It was heaven, yes. It was the deepest love I've ever experienced beyond anything I have previously imagined. But it wasn't euphoric. It wasn't exciting. It was just obvious. Like 
Like when you've been looking at an optical illusion for a long time, straining your eyes to decode the trick, and suddenly your cognizance shifts, and there, now you can see it clearly. The two vases are actually two faces. And once you've seen through the optical illusion, you can never not see it again. So this is God, I thought. Congratulations to meet you. Here ends our reading. It's a big, big world full of all kinds of people, but there's one thing we can all agree on. And when I find out what it is, I'll let you know. Some people eat chicken with their fingers. Some people use a fork and a knife. Some people are sucking on a silver spoon and never ate a chicken in their life. Some people look better in the daytime. Some look better at night. But everybody loves, everybody hurts. Everybody has a touch of Elchmertz. Everybody laughs, everybody sneezes. Everybody fries and everybody freezes. Everybody. Everybody, everybody is everybody else. Some people want a guarantee of freedom. Some people want to take one away. Some say we the people, that's the government. And some say the government they. Some people are walking on the left wing. Some are sliding off the right. But everybody loves, everybody hurts, everybody has a touch of Elchmerz. Everybody laughs, everybody sneezes, everybody fries and everybody freezes. Everybody, everybody, everybody is everybody else and everybody everywhere, lesser and greater as a common denominator. Some people look up and see the ceiling. Some people look up and see God. Some people look forward to a paradise. Some are looking forward to the sod. A lot of people look at more enlightenment. Some are just trying to find the light. But everybody loves, everybody hurts. Everybody has a touch of Elchmerz. Everybody laughs, everybody sneezes, everybody fries and everybody freezes. And everybody sleeps, everybody breathes. Everybody starts with no teeth and teeths. Everybody eats, everybody cries and identifies with the good guys. And everybody's bad, everybody's good. Everybody wants to be understood. Everybody falls, everybody rises. Everybody on some level realizes that everybody, everybody, everybody is everybody else, 
Everybody, absolutely everybody, is everybody else. Francesco Petrarca, more commonly known as Petrarch in this part of the world, was born in 1304 in Arezzo, Italy. His father was a friend of Dante's. His father was a notary who insisted that his sons follow in his footsteps and study the law. But Francesco, it turns out, was far more interested in literature. So when his father died in 1326, the young man left behind his legal studies in Bologna and took minor ecclesiastical orders of the church. It was in the midst of this chapter of his life while in southern France that he decides one day that he wishes to climb a mountain. He wants to climb it, he says, simply to see the view. It's April 26th. 1336, and Petrarch is 31. The mountain is 1,900 feet high, and he talks his brother into scaling it with him. The two set off with two servants to begin the arduous but supported and rocky journey up the mountain. They meet one person along the way, a shepherd, who tells them that he wants also attempted the climb, and it's hard, and the view is really hardly worth all the effort, but this only makes the young Petrarch want it more, he says. The whole way up, Francesco seeks the easier route, regularly splitting off from his brother and the servants to try what appears like it might be a slightly more gradual way, but always, he says, finding himself scaling an even steeper and tougher way to their next landmark meeting point, and always arriving to these places more tired than his companions who took each challenge just as it came to them. Like a good pilgrimage, even the journey is teaching him lessons. He will detail the day in a letter to his former confessor, an Augustinian monk. Always you take the easy path or try, the mountain seems to say to him, but to no great avail, huh? Eventually, reaching the top, the party takes in the extraordinary view, more breathtaking than the shepherd led them to believe. And there's no doubt that the sense at the height of perspective in every direction, literal and figurative perspective on the world, but also on themselves and life that it seeps into at least Francesco in this moment. In fact, while standing there, he remembers that it was actually this day, almost to the day, exactly 10 years ago that he left his legal studies behind. 
Ten years since his father died and he followed his own heart and it sets him wondering and reflecting on how far he has come and how far he has yet to go in a life that will add up to something he can be proud of. There at the mountaintop, he takes stock. He writes, I rejoiced at my progress, I mourned my weaknesses, and I, <laughs> I commiserated the universal instability of human conduct. He remembers, too, that the same spiritual confessor, the one to whom he will write the letter detailing the events of the day, that this man had given him a copy of a book, and that Francesco carried the book with him up the mountain. The book, because the man was an Augustinian monk, I suppose, is St. Augustine's Confessions. Francesco decides he's going to throw the book open and read what's there in a moment of devotional practice and surrender before he returns back down the mountain. Augustine himself, for those of you who know the story, had thrown open a book in a similar moment of wrestling and questioning, and in doing so, found an answer that changed his life. This knowledge is no doubt layered into Petrarch's own decision and into this moment. As he opens the book and finds and reads there the following passage. And men go out to wonder at the heights of mountains and the mighty waves of the sea and the wide sweeps of rivers and the circuit of the ocean and the revolution of the stars, but themselves they consider not. The passage hits Petrarch in the solar plexus. To you or to me, maybe it wouldn't mean so much, but for him it cuts deep. He immediately falls mute and starts down the mountain. Not a syllable fell from my lips, he writes, until we reached the bottom again. These words had given me occupation enough, for I could not believe that it was by a mere accident that I happened upon them. What I had read there I believed to be addressed to me and to no other, remembering that St. Augustine had once suspected the same thing in his own case. What exactly Francesco Petrarca thought on the way down the mountain, what his companions thought of his sudden silence is only partially detailed in the letter that he leaves behind, but the moment changes him. It answers some question. It offers some direction that he perceives and lives into with noticeable results. Less caught up in travel and things of the world, deeper 
going inward in his work of scholarship and creative engagements, there is now from then on an uptick in his work, his public life launched with volumes of poetry. Indeed, Petrarch's life would yield extraordinary fruits. He's credited, as many of you may know, by being the creator of the structure of the sonnet and one of its most gifted poets, with the discovery or rediscovery of the letters of Cicero that's credited with launching the 14th century Italian Renaissance. As a man both pagan and Christian in his practices, he's widely considered the founder of Renaissance humanism a man who fought to rekindle an interest in classical teachings. He wanted to reconcile them with Christianity and invite reason back into the public discourse in a new way. And he's shaped by this pivotal experience he would know and name as a religious one of the mountaintop variety. Mountaintop experiences are certainly one variety of religious experience, as William James would call it. Maslow would call them peak experiences, heights of inspiration and revelation, the ecstasy moments of religious life. But there were experiences that came quietly, that come quietly and less dramatically what Maslow would call plateaus, moments of deep knowing, expansive oceanic moments of connection with all of humankind, a kind of self melting into the unity and love and indivisibility of all. And there are the valley experiences too, the dark nights of the soul, the pain and broken-hearted moments like what Sam talked about this morning. And the knowing and the deepening that comes in time from those places too, out of them. All this and more is this vast category we call religious experiences that runs this insane gamut from visions and voices and burning bushes and risen Christs greeting apostles on the road to vast emptiness and the loss of self that Elizabeth Gilbert and Buddhist masters and others describe to things as simple and everyday as holding a baby or a loved one's hand and having a moment of knowing descend, a knowing that is beyond reason or description, knowing that all will be well, maybe, or that love is never lost, maybe, or that we're connected in ways that defy words, maybe, or that death doesn't scare us anymore, maybe or a thousand epiphanies that drop in like rain and baptize us into some transformed and new way of thinking about ourselves or our relationship to others and the world or where and how we are called. 
Because these experiences change us, affect us, transform us in ways small and revolutionary, they are key to who we are and our stories of how we came to this way of being. And sharing them with those with whom we are in this journey of meaning-making is also key. What this means, of course, is that there is this core respect that we offer one another, a curiosity that's not about interrogation ever, but this desire to connect and hear one another's stories. Yesterday, in our Spirit Saturday, the course that I led opened with a chance for folks to share their spiritual and religious experiences, however they would have defined that. And in my little group of three people, I ate up with a spoon what was shared. And literally my only sadness from the day was that I couldn't sit in each of those groups and hear the stories that were shared in them. How I love and hunger for hearing what has fed the deepest commitments that we all have and what these moments of transformation look like and what we know to be true and when we knew it and how. It's actually all of that that I think drew me most into this profession, the the mystery and the reality of how it is we come to be more deeply, wisely human, and how to make space for that. It is also what I realized then we actually need to make space and intention around these moments Some, of course, come to us like a surprise and uninvited guest, right? You think you're walking your dog, for instance, in some last chore of the night, as I was not so long ago in a street behind my house. And suddenly you are aware of how gorgeous and quiet the night is and how ridiculously lucky you are to be alive and to breathe and to look at the starry sky and how, how too, this animal that walks beside you whose collar jingles with her name tag and proof that she's had her rabies vaccine, how she'll someday not be here beside you and you know it, but she doesn't. At least you don't think she does. And then how you too are going to vanish from this street, a memory pressed into the pavement. And how in the midst of all of it, all we can do is try to be present and alive to the fullness of it, of this. That's it. But that's enough. And then as quickly as you were sucked into deep time without warning, you realize it's time to get out your plastic bag and pick up after this jingle-collared dog 
Sometimes experiences that break us open to wisdom and reorder our spirit a little, they just come in uninvited, right? And other times, though, you and I, we, we try to make space for them, if we're wise, right? We, we throw open doors, and, well, and it's like we light candles in the window, like you do in Diwali in India, so that Lakshmi, when she's wandering back home, will see the lights and come into your home and offer you prosperity of the largest kind of spirit and health and peace for the year. For our part, we do that, right? If we're wise, we, we do whatever we can to make space for these moments. Whatever practices that keep us open and awake and watchful, We make time to sit quietly and to read contemplatively and to go on pilgrimages, small or large, and to sit in inspiring places and sacred groves where trees are ancient and stand like gods, or we hold our vigil at a hospital bed. We tend our gardens. We live formally and informally into practices that say, I am open, wide open to wisdom and love and transformation. And we cross our fingers. And if we're lucky, we get to share some of the life and mystery that meets us along these roads and learn and deepen from one another. After coming down from the mountain, Francesco wrote the details to his friend, and then he asked the father to pray for him. He said, pray that these vague and wandering thoughts of mine may sometime come firmly fixed and after having been vainly tossed from one interest to another, may direct themselves at last toward the single, true, certain, and everlasting good. So may it be for us all. And our experiences of wisdom and knowing and clarity guide us along the way.
down your hymnals and join hands as we say our benediction. If you are sick or immunocompromised, just put your arms across your chest and we'll include you without holding your hand. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace, for this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org.